Web3. What is it? How will it change the internet and our lives? When will it do so? Will it do so? That is our topic today on the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Barthold. I've been known to do uh, fulsome intros on this podcast. I'm not even going to try to do that today. Uh, we will have two experts explain everything to me, which I'm very happy about. Hillary Brill is a senior fellow at Georgetown Law's Institute for Technology, Law, and Policy. She's been doing tech policy for more than 25 years, including as the founder and head of HTB Strategies, working there with both Fortune 500 tech companies and public interest tech clients, as well as during stints at PayPal and eBay. She's here today on behalf of Decentralized Future Council, an initiative with Filecoin Foundation and the Internet Education Foundation that aims to help policymakers understand decentralized technologies. Gabrielle Hibbert is the other expert here today. She is a resident fellow at the Decentralized Future Council. She's the co-founder of Bloom, a Web3 development education program for women and genderqueer individuals. Outside of Bloom, she works as a security researcher at Least Authority, a digital security and privacy firm. Gabrielle has over 10 years experience in the research field and is a frequent guest lecturer at the College of William and Mary, Brandeis University, and Spelman College. Hillary and Gabrielle are both enthusiastic about Web3. They're going to help us understand what it is, its promise, its potential future. Welcome to you both. So as my intro suggested, I think we need to start at the beginning. What is Web3 and what's gotten you interested in it? Yeah, so I actually like to start way before Web3 and really position us at the start of the internet, really. So when we get to Web1, we have what we call the static web, these read or write only pages. This is the internet that uh, most of our generation is familiar with. There's not a lot of e-commerce pages popping up yet, uh, but by the early 2000s, we get an explosion of activity and we get web two or the social or participatory web. And this is where we have this kind of architecture where it's one to many uh, connection wise. We get a lot of social media platforms, we get a lot of e-commerce. And right now I would say we are in the stages of moving into Web3. So Web3, succinctly put, is the web of trust, authentication, and immutability. Uh, from a more technical perspective, we can kind of think of Web3 as the internet without the centralized authority uh, architecture to it. It is decentralized, and I can get into that if you, know, you want a more uh, less technical definition of that. Well, I think it's worth a little bit of going into that because uh, some people, including myself, when I first dive into this and am grappling for something I understand, sort of attach it to, my first understanding was it was kind of a return to web one, as you said, and that doesn't really make much sense. It's not um, the DARPA net 
uh, with a few email accounts with each other. It's obviously much more than that. Uh, and then I saw some people basically saying it's a way to sort of rebrand blockchain so that it's not just people thinking of like crypto bros and Litecoin and, and uh, finance crazes. Um, and it's, it's talking about the actual applications that a blockchain ledger can be used for to benefit everyone and benefit the internet. And so I can put it to you, of, is that completely wrong or is that getting somewhere? Yeah, so I can separate those two out in very distinct categories. So when I'm talking to folks who are a little bit more green around the ears, as it comes to Web3 and blockchain and crypto, let's kind of break it down a little bit. So when we talk about blockchain, that is basically a uh, version of distributed ledger technology or DLT. So this is where data is stored and validated across a distributed database. And you can kind of think of blockchain as a foundation for technologies like cryptocurrency. And I would like to make a little note about the clarification between a cryptocurrency and cryptography, because we kind of lump them together when we say the word crypto. Uh, but from the technical perspective, uh, cryptocurrency is essentially the catch-all term for digital currencies that do not rely on banks for formal verification, where cryptography is really the science of securing communications in the face of adversarial behavior. So you've got all of that to very technical language. Uh, and they are essentially components of what Web3 can be. Hillary, please. I appreciate the confusion that you might actually feel when you start to learn about what Web3 is. And in fact, that's a reason why, and you had asked, why did I get involved in this issue area? The reason why I started engaging directly with uh, the the Digital Future Council is because these terms are confusing. And Gabrielle is a computer scientist. I'm a tech policy um, expert. I'm not afraid of technology. I love to dig into technology. The more I learn about this area, the more I want to participate in um, uh, these types of decentralized technologies. But what I find so interesting is that these terms are confusing for now. And I just taught my class um, last week, and I was talking about the early days of the internet in 1995, and I had a snippet from uh, from Katie Couric and Al Roker talking about there's this email. Okay, we're not even talking about the internet. There's this email, and you can send to each other. And they went to their technical correspondent and literally asked a very similar question to what you just asked, which was, "Tell us about this internet." And I feel that's where we are right now. Tell us about this Web3. Can you explain this Web3? And th there isn't an exact term. I think the internet actually is easier to explain than what is Web3 because different people have different ideas when they're talking about it. And the Decentralized Future Council talks about Web3 technologies, the, these ideas of decentralized technologies that Gabrielle was just mentioning. There's different kinds of technologies. And more importantly, as a as a, a future and promise of what these technologies can bring. They, and, and I hope we get into that a little bit more. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's good to know that I've now put on recording something that 20 years from now, if anybody looks back, I will be the guy going after the break, the internet, what is it? Uh, which I don't know if you're, we're talking about the same one. I do remember one of those morning show ones that pops up every now and then. Well, let me come at it this way. Um, Satoshi Nakamoto, I believe, is the the name. He comes up with the uh, basically the software program that becomes uh, blockchain. Um, is that oversimplifying the myth? Like, is 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 Web three basically a revolution in software coming up with the concept of a confirmable ledger? Um, or is that grossly oversimplifying sort of the kernel around which Web3 is building? Yeah, so I like to break it down even further. So I think in, in popular discourse, we hear Satoshi Nakamoto linked with blockchain, but the history of blockchain definitely precedes uh, Satoshi Nakamoto's 2008 white paper uh, that basically tells a story of how he created Bitcoin. Um, we, um, speaking we as computer scientists and technologists, have been working on a distributed ledger database for a long time. Uh, right around 1970 is where we got this idea of blockchain. It wasn't yet blockchain yet, but it was moving into how we now talk about it. Uh, and kind of referring back to what I said earlier, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, like the one that Satoshi Nakamoto created uses the infrastructure of blockchain to have a distributed ledger system where you can confirm transactions and verify those actions and uh, have a you know, a store of value. Um, Marshall Kosloff, a former guest on the show, uh, was voicing some measured skepticism about Web3 on one of his podcasts, The Realignment, which is a great podcast worth checking out, by the way. He wasn't making any sweeping pronouncements about its future. He wasn't uh, making predictions, but he was saying that he doesn't necessarily think he he knows Web3 is legitimately the next big thing, quote unquote, uh, until there's some product that normal people, normies like me, run into and just sort of intuitively understand this is cool. Do you think that's right? Uh, and if it is, what is that product? Well, I think that's a potential mischaracterization of what Web3 and the decentralized web is. It is happening right now and you don't necessarily know it or realize that that is actually Web3. And again, that's one of the driving forces of why we want to have uh, an organization that's going to explain to the average person and to policymakers. Right now, the sands are shifting beneath our feet regarding what we think of the internet. And most of us, we have no idea. So when I say this, some specific examples, blockchain and decentralized technologies uh, are happening. And some would argue that one cool thing is, and you can put your judgment aside, and I know you're excited to talk about this issue, one cool thing arguably could be NFTs. Now, some people might say they are, some people might say they're not. But what I like to focus on are the cool things for public and social good that blockchain technologies, which are one of the decentralized technologies that 
is part of this Web3 is being used for. And that's being used in a variety of different ways right now. That's being used to have funds for example, go directly to refugees in different countries. In fact, the United Nations is promoting these kind of technologies in order to have more efficiency, um, more privacy, more security around funds going from one place to another. Um, blockchain is being used to trace uh, food. So we know where it's going from one place to another. If there is a health break or a health scare, you can actually know because of this train of information. Uh, there also are organizations like uh, like the Filecoin Foundation and the concept behind the Filecoin Foundation, many of these things, but one main part of it is to actually store important information, the information that is important to you and me in a way that will not be subject to privacy and security concerns or be taken down immediately from someone else in a, in a, um, uh, a situation where they don't want to be censored and you want to have your information stored. Uh, for example, we have a problem with uh, if you go to um, Wikipedia, for example, and you try to access a link, sometimes those links aren't accessible. Having information stored in a specific place where it won't just have link rot, that is one of the promises that possibly can be used with some of the blockchain that we have right now. I don't know if that's answering the cool, cool factors. That is answering the public good factors. Um, perhaps, Gabrielle, you know, cooler ways. I mean, I do know that there was just in the news today. Again, it's a judgment of whether or not you think this is cool, but uh, Decentraland is a metaverse that exists now and it is a separate reality. And JP Morgan just bought a lounge in the metaverse and many people think it's cool to buy land in the metaverse. There are many gamers that are using Web3 technologies. So this is beyond cryptocurrency. This is being used in a whole variety of different ways in different areas. And you know, it, it, there is an implicit assumption about what something is or should be in, in my question. I mean, refrigeration, uh, nobody ever uh, looked at it and thought it was cool the way an iPhone is cool and yet it changed people's lives uh, profoundly more than uh, you know, a lot of cool, gadgets. That said, you're in the regulatory space. Uh, is it um, is it a pro? Is it a con? I mean, do you have thoughts about the fact that here's a new technology and it's blossoming and you just named some, some serious goods, you know, getting money to refugees. And yet uh, taking up most of the oxygen in the space right now is, uh, you know, board, ape, yacht club, uh, NFTs and uh, there is a weird marriage, at least in the media, between this technology and the same kind of vibe that we got from sort of game stonk and meme stocks. And um, I noticed that literally there is an NFT for tulips, like celebrate, you know, mocking the fact of irrational exuberance as you're selling it. Um, do you think that's a drawback or that it risks, you know, sort of a regulatory um, knee-jerk reaction that could be negative, or is it kind of any publicity is good publicity? Oh, I think that's a fantastic question. I think in terms of having people recognize that there are decentralized technologies that are in existence right now, any, any type of publicity is great publicity. In terms of concerns about this NFT 
marketplace. I think that it's an unknown area. And it, once you hear of bad actors, and there are always bad actors in any type of technology, correct? But once you hear bad actors, it allows individuals that are scared of technologies to, in my personal opinion, inappropriately move too far to say, we need to regulate, regulate, regulate. Um, and then there are people who are Pollyanna-ish, and that's not what I'm trying to be when I tell you the public good. I'm just trying to talk about the public good because that isn't taking up the airspace when we read um, newspapers and and um, we, we hear about what's happening. There shouldn't be someone on the other side as well. I think we are in a time where it's not that long ago, 1995, to actually think, well, what happened in 95 uh, when the internet was coming about? There was the same tension between innovation and regulation. What can we learn from the lessons from then to where we are now? And how do we now look at these new technologies, which frankly, for those of my colleagues in my generation, we love this. This is why we were so excited 25 years ago. It was a new space and a wild, wild west. And there was a need to really dig into where our laws intersect with this technology, where it could be helpful, where it could be harmful, and where we go from here. One thing I find frustrating, going to everything you've just said, in the beginnings of Web 2, and it's actually funny if you look back at some of the, the cover stories on uh, Wired Magazine or uh, you know the tech press, and the tech press used to be extraordinarily optimistic. There was an optimism in the wider society, you know, we all remember those of us who are old enough, the, uh, the tech bubble, you know, Super Bowl ads for pets.com. That eventually blossomed. We got these products that were very cool. There was a time when Facebook was really cool and hip. And then it sort of turned sour. And some of the same technologies that built up Web2 that people were excited about, eventually people became negative about them. They started to focus on the bad things. And one thing that bums me out as someone who believes in technological progress is I feel like we're speed running that with Web3 as if people have learned it. And so we already have this sort of weird mix in the dialogue where someone like you who's pointing out the genuine goods of technology is already, before it's even really taken off, having to compete with people who are brainstorming the, the bad uses. So um, the same thing that could be used to give money to refugees can be used to fund, I mean, it's kind of an inflammatory example because it's on everybody's mind, but like the, Cana the Canadian truckers, I am not taking a stand on the Canadian truckers on this podcast, but a lot of people are gonna look and, and it's already, well, can it be used to help my culture war pet thing or can it be used to hurt it? And we see this with content moderation, you know, well, if Web3 can protect speech and then people get all mad. Um, and I, I don't know, I just, I find that quite frustrating. And how do you, how do you, how do you keep that positive message out in the forefront, Hillary? That's what I'm trying to do in a, in a conversation like this with you and, and frankly, through, uh, organized efforts. That's why we we started the Decentralized Future Council. We're concerned that the knee-jerk reaction to something that people don't know is going to be shut it down or fear 
or confusion or frankly dismissive because that's happening as well. Oh, this, this uh, people are saying this Bitcoin thing, it's, they're still saying it's a fad. And then there are other people saying, no, it's going to go, you know, still through the roof. So what is important is to have real, these real conversations. There are public goods and possible better public interest internet. And I'm quoting um, that term from, I don't want to take that term from Daniel Bryan, um, who uh, uh, I think it was at EFF when he talked about the public interest internet. We have opportunities to make a better internet, right? On the other hand, we have opportunities to, to make it not as better and make it worse potentially. So we need to have these real conversations with experts, frankly, like Gabrielle, in the room to explain to people what these technologies are and why they shouldn't be scared of them. And how do we promote these positive values of autonomy, lack of censorship, promoting privacy and security in a positive way. But any technology, Corbin, any technology, for, remember the internet in the early days, it, confusion, people said, you can buy and sell whatever you want on the internet anonymously. I mean, that was, a, that was a trope that everyone said. You can buy and sell everything on the internet anonymously. anonymously. And Gabrielle, you can go into the details more, but I know I have an IP address. You know where the, most, of, most of what I do on the internet comes from. Um, you're anonymous on the internet. And people are saying you're anonymous on decentralized web, and that's not necessarily true either. So we need to really understand these technologies and these issues before we make sweeping statements dismissing things or regulating them. Um, yeah, I think a certain acknowledgement that certain, you know, technologies don't just float down and are pure good or pure bad, but are what we make of them is one aspect of that, uh, which allows me to transition to a question I do have for, for Gabrielle, uh, getting beyond NFTs, you know, non-fungible non tokens. Uh, Tokens as a concept, it, it seems to me, has a much wider range or, or has much more possibility than just the selling of uh, even NFTs and could be used as basically a system of credentialing mm -hmm. across all kinds of, of um, you know, showing your educational attainments or your work attainments. Could you tell me about that? Yeah, and I'd also like to kind of add to what Hillary was saying oh, in please. that, you know, as someone who is in the technology space and working with these products day in and day out is that we are still iterating. Uh, we're still in that process of experimentation and research and seeing where we can take uh, Web3, where its limitations and where, it's, where are its potentialities. So uh, this is a process that I believe that a lot of folks who are not on the uh, technological side of things tend to forget uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, we're, we're still working on these, these uh, the architecture and the foundations of the products that we see in the media. But to answer your point, when we talk about tokens, you can really distill them to the idea of setting something or uh, storing value within a, an entity. 
And whatever that value is, is really decided at the protocol level. And I know this is very technological speak, uh, but to bring it back to real life, we have the idea of tokenized credentialing already with credit scores. Uh, you know, these are verified tokens of how credible we are in our financial markets. So when we talk about tokenizing different aspects of like you say, education or possibly work achievements, this concept isn't really new. It's more of the idea of converting something that may be arbitrary in terms of uh, social standing into something that is codified and authenticated. It, it, it's a topic that fascinates me because I, in, I can envision such great ways in which that would be used. And then I, then I can totally catastrophize in my brain too. Um, on the one hand, I think it's fantastic that we might, there's a, there's a ring of meritocracy to it in the sense of you did thing X or you didn't. And whether you have the shiny degree from the right school or whatever uh, is beside the point. And yet at the same time, I think of say in Europe, uh, you know, they have the right to be forgotten uh, because that's sort of a human value that um, this permanent record of everything you do gives me this almost sense of paranoia. And so I, I don't even know if, I, I don't think I, I have a question coming out of that other than just like, it, it's so, it, it, it's immense when I look at it. It just seems like a very profound change to almost like human, the experience of being human. Maybe I'm just ridiculously overstating that. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, this needs to be researched in conjunction with strengthening our data privacy. So we can't have one without the other, especially as you move through Web3 and the products that come out of it. So, you know, I'm a security researcher and I look at these problems every day in figuring out how to create systems that ensure users' privacy while making it traceable in a way where we have the referential metadata to execute uh, certain functions. Yeah, it does seem like we are problem-solving creatures. And uh, to go back to Hillary's point of, of what conversations like this looked like surrounding, say, uh, the internet in 1994, you know, there was a time when we would have been sitting here going, um, pop-up windows on the internet. Are they going to destroy the internet? You know, it kind of felt that way circa 1999, or I don't know if I have my dates right, but um, these things do get, get worked out. I, I, I also think it's any new technology, right? What, it, you talk about televisions or computers or uh, people might, what we're doing right now, what people might argue uh, your, your, you know, children's ha having devices or all of us on our iPhones, we have changed the way that we at, at, at a basic level communicate than the way we used to 25 years ago before we had phones. I mean, just go look at, you know, the, the 80s movies. It was a lot different the way people communicated compared to what you can see in the movies now and people on their phones. So I think you're correct that this can inherently change how we communicate and interact with each other. And I think it is normal human nature to be concerned about what that means and what that impact is. But we do need to realize that happens and it is actually 
happening. I mean, it's happening at such a rapid clip, clip with investors and NFTs and these metaverses and people buying digital assets. I mean, that is the most tangible example, in my opinion, of how we are reevaluating and reconsidering what we what a digital how important a digital asset is. So I think it's it's a conversation that will happen, frankly, 20 years from now with the next thing. And it's it's a fun conversation as long as we recognize the good and the bad and what we can do about it. I think it's fun from a policy regulatory perspective. Uh, and it keeps um, a lot of people active and a lot of people busy. I would say that that's for sure. I continue to feel very excited about the future, but the conversation wouldn't be very fun if I didn't uh, be the curmudgeon here. <laughs> the, oh, let's, shift, uh, let's shift to the, the concept of sort of value and uh, maybe the term sharing economy applies here. You know, one thing that Web3 gets promoted as is uh, f- flattening the economy of the internet a bit. I mean, the, the, the narrative around Web2 is you centralized and uh, by centralizing, you sort of created these profit centers, the person who is the first, you know, moves fast and breaks things and gets situated right on owning the platform makes all the profit. That's slightly oversimplified, but that's sort of the concept of where did Web 2 go wrong? And everybody's saying, well, Web 3 is great, but it's going to be easier for the creators of the world to capture more of the value they create. That is the, that is the story or, or the, the promise. Uh, could one of you sort of explain how that will work if it works out? And then maybe say what you, you know, how optimistic you are that it will. Yeah, so I can provide a little bit more context to why some content creators may be really excited about the potentiality for this in Web3. So as you said, in Web2, a lot of the kind of intermediary websites and platforms that content creators use, uh, the product is the content creator or the product is uh, whoever interacts with the posts or uh, uses the platform, Uh, that's the commodity. In Web3, what folks are looking forward to is the aspect of exchanging goods, services, data peer to peer instead of peer to many. And what that could look like will definitely vary, but I have seen some very interesting projects come out of my student courses where uh, speaking to that content moderation piece for creators who may be uh, being limited by a website uh, from what they make, they could look to using the decentralized architecture of Web3 to exchange their goods and services to whoever they like without that moderation aspect. And while we're going through promising aspects of, of Web3, how about smart contracts? I, as a lawyer, feel like that would be a immensely promising technology. Basically, there's a phrase, you know, ownership is 90% of the law or whatever. If you've set up the smart contract such that the property changes hands on the happening of an automatically pre-agreed to event, 
I mean, if that works as promised, that could save just untold riches in attorney billable hours. The big question is, is that realistic? Hillary, do you have thoughts? I think that there are a lot of uh, uh, individuals that are working on trying to find ways to make smart contracts work for them. I think that there are a lot of lawyers that don't want to be written out of uh, contract law. Um, and, and as a lawyer myself, I, uh, I can see the promise, but I also see um, uh, concern. Just like we were just saying, if there isn't a curmudgeon, it's not fun. I can see that there's concern with any kind of automatic um, contractual situation occurring. You, know, you have to still look at legal concepts of intent when you sign the contract. Was it a contract of adhesion? Is a smart contract by its nature adhesion? I mean, there's lots of fun legal questions around uh, a smart contract automatically shifting from one situation to another as soon as a rule is done. On the other hand, there's some pretty simple smart con contracts that can occur if you pay something then you actually get a good. That to me seems less complicated than a contract about evicting you from your uh, uh, apartment. How do you enforce that in a smart mm -hmm. contract, right? So I think it depends on what the smart contract is being used for. Uh, well, from contracts to corporations law. And the fact that I can list this many things is itself a sign of Web3's promise, certainly. Um, decentralized autonomous organizations. And this goes back to our topic earlier of how much does hype help? How much does hype sort of flood the zone with um, with junk junk food material, shall we say? But I, again, as a normie, when I hear Dow, what I think of right now is trying to purchase a copy of the Constitution. It's which was a thing for any listeners who don't know. It's it's perhaps the most high profile use of a Dow to this point. That is kind of just pooling money and establishing ownership in the event of success. But it does seem like uh, a decentralized autonomous organization could in theory do great things. I mean, how much potential is it is there there for uh, a DAO to become a legitimate corporate form? Yeah, I mean, I can speak to more of the governance aspect of a DAO. So what I find really interesting about DAOs is that they have off-chain and on-chain governance. So the off-chain aspect is where humans are working to reach consensus. They are working together to figure out, uh, you know, what will they do in this organization, how they will do it. So in conjunction with the on-chain governance or the consensus mechanism at the protocol level, you have this really interesting uh, and nice mesh between the involvement of humans with this kind of coded logic. So from a developer's perspective, I think that the use of DAOs is a really interesting iteration of humans interacting with uh, computers. Hillary, any thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for this question. And I, I have been digging into these decentralized technologies, again, as not a computer scientist, but as a te technology um, policy, uh, you know, analyst and where, you know, the intersection of these issues arise. And I found the DAOs quite interesting as well. And when I dug into it a little bit more, 
I, I really like to think of it pretty simply. And uh, uh, Gabrielle, you can uh, um, uh, you know, add if need be, but I really think of them as a community where you have these rules and the community has to agree on the rules, by the way, ahead of time, the community has to agree on the rules. And then to be part of the community, that's where you need a token. So you need a token to be part of the community. You need to have rules. And then you can get tokens sometimes if you follow the rules or you do something maybe outside of the, the community. So let's think of what is a DAO because that helps me to really understand how it's being used and how it could possibly be used in some good ways. And when you think of it that way, I think it makes sense, Gabrielle, your human and computer um, relationship of creating community rules and how those things work. But only the people in the DAO can make the rules and change them. And that's what's so interesting. When you were saying before about meritocracy, this is a true democracy. Whoever has a certain number of tokens, if it's written in rules, and it seems that many of them are, you have that many votes in certain environments. So that, again, could be used for good or could be concerning because if you control all the votes and you control the community, it's such an interesting community organization, but how is it being used? It's not just being used as a constitution um, or uh, used to buy the constitution. It definitely can be used and is being used for other purposes to gather money for charities. And only the people who have the tokens get to choose where the funds are going and which charities. So you have certain votes depending on how much you actually donate or what you do to get certain tokens. So there's this investment and reinvestment. There are these social communities. I don't know if you've heard about them. And I think the social communities might bring DAOs to the greater um, public sooner than later. You talked about the NFTs and the Board um, board 8 Yacht Club. There is also a, a DAO and a social community in part of that. If you have, uh, it's, but if you have NFTs, you can be part of a social network, social perks, social events that only you get if you are part of this um, community, but there's also a community called Friends with Benefits, and you need a certain number of tokens to be part of that community. And once you're in it, you also get to go to exclusive events. And the tokens for that used to be like a few hundred dollars. Now it's thousands of dollars. So you can see our general human nature of wanting to maybe be part of an exclusive club or community ending up in these kind of social organizations, perhaps before some of the potential public interest benefits that could come out of them. Uh, and I think what's interesting is that I, I don't know if this is the future of Web3, because we talked about different technologies like this being part of the future, but I do think these kind of innovations, these kind of disruptions to how we do things gets us thinking about, is this a better system? Is it not? Is it a usable system? Are there too many tokens? around? If there's so many communities, how many tokens do I need to be involved? How do I keep track of these tokens? Will there be an easier system? Will there be a recentralization of the tokens? And there's just so many things you can ask that come from all these different types of technologies, but to me, particularly the DAOs. Well, you talked about voting shares. One quick follow-up there. Uh, there is a system that we have for that already, you know, you own shares and you vote. Is this a way to, to make that so that it can be more granular? You know, because if you're a shareholder in a corporation, there's, you know, there's a meeting once a year and there's initiatives. Does a DAO enable the decision-making to be more democratic sort of on more day-to-day -day stuff? Am I, is that what I'm hearing? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, it, it adds clarity, I would say, to the organization and governance of specific communities instead of kind of this, uh, not necessarily behind closed doors, uh, operations that we are maybe more familiar with in the web two and, and, and outside of the <laughs> technology world. Well, this is good because I think there's a great dystopian sci-fi movie to be made about some combination of uh, GPT-3. Uh, for any listeners not aware, it's, it's a very powerful AI writing program that is as yet not publicly available uh, with, a, with a DAO and we're in the future and it's something like uh, the Tyrell Corporation in Blade Runner where the corporations never had any human input and it like dominates the world or something. Sounds like it'd be a great film, but I'm not worried about it given your uh, discussion of what DAOs are uh, happening anytime soon. So we can continue to have them be things that uh, promote human flourishing. You mentioned a lot of, of the social benefits of DAOs. Actually, returning a little bit to my dystopic science fiction film idea that I'm going to turn to writing as soon as this episode's over. Uh, in terms of, of goal-oriented or like mission-oriented corporations that go out and try to sell a certain product or achieve a certain goal. Um, maybe you covered it a bit there in your answer, but I'd be curious to hear more about, I mean, do DAOs have potential to actually sort of start as a decentralized institution that then, you know, is selling a product or achieving, uh, you know, goal or providing a service? I mean, I think that all depends. I, you know, I look at things at a very granular level. I don't really get to that point where I'm in the physical realm necessarily. So it really depends on the, at the creation stages of that DAO, whether or not uh, that is included in, but I'm sure maybe Hillary has some more examples of, of what this has looked like. Well, turning it to you, Hillary, I know there've been some sort of early flops in this regard of people sort of trying to set something up where it, it's a sign on and we'll come up with, you know, a video game, but it's not thought out at all beyond that. Like just, it's a placeholder. And I, I, I kind of want this to be something that has potential that actually does work beyond just hucksters, you know, grabbing cash. Well, I'm glad to hear that I'm moving you to a different side of the needle, a little bit away from dystopia and curmudgeon into potential. So that's that's good. I'm glad we got that. Um, in, no, I want to invest in the one that takes over the world and you know get rich. No, fair, I, fair. I and then maybe ahead, and then maybe you'll create the public interest um, uh, DAOs. Actually, there are service DAO concepts, and people are working on them. And the idea would be to bring frankly, strangers, but not really, but people that may not necessarily know each other from anywhere. It could be globally all over the world to build a social product or a social good or service. And this is how it would potentially work. A client um, would ask for a service from the DAO. So I could say, I'm looking for some kind of system that can trace uh, donated goods from the you know, the U.S. to uh, a recent disaster in um, another country, let's say. And the people that are the DAO, the DAO could be um, a, a talent pool of computer scientists that can work on that. The DAO could be a talent pool of other types of services that are needed for that. And you, you get those people into this community by giving them tokens. So we could call it... Um, uh, you know, Corbin and Hillary's public interest DAO, and we could get, what would we call that? The CH 
PD uh, token, but we're going to do this after you write your book. And the idea would be you get these tokens if you're part of the community and you might, um, you might get paid through these tokens uh, or you might get them for the amount of time that you work in the community. So the idea of tokens is, it, it, I hate to say it so simply, but to me, I always think of video games. You know, you get a token for doing this, you get a token for, you get a coin that pops up. You get, you can get these tokens. And then once you have them, you're more invested in your community. There are benefits you get from it. Uh, you might get, if you have a certain number of tokens, that could be the meritocracy type system where, oh, well, you've done so many public service goods. I mean, public service um, services, we're going to go to you. So there are communities that can be organized in a different way. We just have to think about these things differently, not the way we usually just go through word of mouth or online or through our traditional systems. We have to think about it differently. So this is all sufficiently wide open and certainly new to me. You know, I've been tr kind of driving the discussion, but I want to give each of you a chance as we sort of start to head toward the close to um, you know, say anything else that I've not covered that you'd like about, you know, what you're thinking in this space or insights that have occurred to you. Uh, just a chance for a round of, of, you know, what have I not gotten out of you so far in the discussion that you'd like to share? As someone who works on uh, regulatory and legislative matters, I, I think it's worth noting that people are paying attention to decentralized technologies and are trying to have some of these conversations that we think are important. And there are legislative efforts to dig in more about the public good and the public aspects of these types of technologies. There are some legislations that are happening, and this is why these conversations are so important, that are potentially um, inadvertently harming these innovations. For example, there was a in the recent infrastructure bill, there was a broker provision that was added to the infrastructure bill. And the idea was to actually consider digital assets and what do we do about them and how do we report that to the IRS. And the way it was drafted was so broad that arguably it includes the activity of miners. And I mean miners as Bitcoin miners. <laughs> I mean, your general miner, but people that are mining Bitcoin um, are now being wrapped up into something that's supposed to be a broker when you buy just a, a, a commodity or an exchange, um, or it could be people that provide the software to do some of these decentralized technologies, or, or uh, it's just written so broadly. So the, there are concerns about legislation that's being written that will harm without intending to um, new technologies. And then there are legislations actually dedicated some on the state level to how do we promote blockchain? How do we prevent these concerns that you're talking about? How do we use it in the way that we want to use it? And I think it's really, frankly, just a matter of time before uh, there will be a larger potential, broader uh, Web3 type of legislation. If, if, if only to get these conversations, these hearings going. There are conversations, I mean, there was just a hearing um, this week, uh, but usually it's about stable coins and the digital dollar. This is beyond that. And as you said, it's beyond cryptocurrency, it's beyond crypto bros. In fact, you have two non-crypto bros right here. Um, so, so it is more than that. And that if there's one takeaway, and I think I've said it, that's what I really hope um, people uh, recognize about Web3. Number one, don't be scared 
it's, it's all technologies can be understood. Um, and hopefully there'll be places for you to understand and learn about the basics. And uh, number two, this isn't just about Bitcoin and uh, uh, be wary of being dismissive. Hopefully you can recognize uh, the things that you, you want to embrace. Well, that was very uh, eloquent. Thank you, Gabrielle. Yeah, I would just like to underscore what Hillary said. I mean, from my perspective as a technologist, you know, it's on our plate as well to help educate uh, folks who may not be as familiar with these technical concepts to really distill them out to folks. And that's uh, kind of why I'm here as well, to really show and uh, tell that these are tools that could be used for a more equitable technological future. So, yeah. Well, to you both, uh, both of your answers, I think that's a great note to end on. I've had much fun talking with you about this and uh, we'll, we'll see. I guess I'll have to set a timer on my calendar to listen back to this in 20 years and see how stupid I sound. Uh, or brilliant, or brilliant. Yeah. Narrator, probably not. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you both. This has been wonderful. Um, thank you so much. To, to each of you, where can we follow your, your work going forward? Uh, thank you for asking. And uh, you can uh, see what uh, is happening with uh, the Georgetown Institute for Technology, Law and Policy, or the Decentralized Future Council, or uh, you feel free to follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, and also, um, uh, at htbstrategies.com. Uh, and then I am pretty old school. I only have LinkedIn, so <laughs> follow me on my LinkedIn. <laughs> hey, that works. Uh, web 2's revenge. Okay. Right, we're going to have a Web 3 way of, of doing this before mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. thanks so much to you both. I am Corbin Barthold. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. Till next time. Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.